Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we are getting ready for your summer vacation. A lot of people think, I'm just going to go relax. But what you want is you want a trip that changes your life in some way. It doesn't have to be a a huge change. It doesn't have to be like uh, a new career or anything like that. But some way that, at least in a little way, it changes your life. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Well, it is summer travel season. And so Mark and I were trying to figure out who should be the guest of honor to help talk about that. Mark says, I've got the guy. Seth Kugel, his book is called Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. He is the New York Times columnist. He writes The Frugal Traveler, and he's going to help you make the most of your travels, of your vacation. And the thing I love about this is he doesn't want to do it with an unlimited budget, but he also is very clear on how to focus on an experience. Now, you know we do so much fun stuff here at the show. Well, stay tuned. At the end of our interview, we've got a brand new feature that we're rolling out, and it is fun. So check it out. Stick around. End of the interview. New feature. Here's our interview with Seth. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Let's start with a very important question that we begin every interview with. Ready? The best money or career decision you have made. Well, um, I think it was going to Brazil in the summer of 2003 because I wanted to learn Portuguese. I got on a boat in the Amazon. Somebody actually told me, I was just trying to learn a new language, and they said, well, if you really want to learn Portuguese after you studied for a few months, go to the Colombian-Brazilian border. Mm -hmm. Get on a boat for four days from the border to the capital of the Amazon, which is a city called Manaus. And in four days, you're going to be sleeping on a hammock surrounded by 100 Brazilians, and all they're going to want to do is talk to you. So you're going to learn more Portuguese in four days than you did in class for a year. And you know what is the best advice I ever got? And even better than that, when I got back to New York, the travel editor of the New York Times, who I knew but I had never written for, said to me, Hey, Seth, I need some new writers. Have you been anywhere interesting recently? Oh. And I said, Well, yeah. In fact, I have. I was just learning Portuguese on a boat going down the Amazon. That's cool. And that's how my career as a travel writer started. Okay. So when you think about travel writing in general, it sometimes can be kind of boring. So how do you make it exciting? Uh, Well, to me, travel writing now is all about your personal experience. Uh, If you want the facts about where to go, it's all online. You just Google it. You look on TripAdvisor. You look on booking.com for the hotel and you read all the facts about it. Travel is all about your personal experience. And that means doing things your own way, not listening to what other people say you should do, not going to see the Mona Lisa when you're in Paris, unless you're dying to see the Mona Lisa. Yeah, because there are some crowds there. It's an it's amazing. <laughs> and yet you look at people's selfies who sit there, who go to the Mona Lisa, and it looks like they're alone with the Mona Lisa. A lot of the stuff we get from travel marketing is kind of a lie. I mean, they want you to go to the most, they want to go to Venice and Paris and do the most typical things and go to the Caribbean and sit in a resort. Travel is really about getting out into the world, meeting people, or, or seeing marvelous nature, but not surrounded by a bunch of other travelers. So I always advocate, I'm not saying you need to go off to the most obscure village where there's never been any tourist ever, although that is a lot of fun, and I have done that. Uh, I'm just talking about getting a little bit away from the mainstream travelers and stop posting so much on Instagram and thinking about the people who are back home and getting and, and getting out there and doing what you want to do, thinking about, like, what do I want to get out of this trip? 
you love food and eating. Uh, a lot of people do. So, you know, center your trip around markets that sell e- exotic fruits or uh, about uh, great bakeries in the place where you're going to. I mean, Colombia, for example, is a great country to eat in bakeries. People don't, don't know that Colombia has great bakeries. Well, I have to admit, I live in a Colombian neighborhood in Jackson Heights, Queens. Which also has great food. Which has great food. So there's a ton of Colombian bakeries I go to all the time. Uh, here's a little, I just was in Prague in the Czech Republic doing a story. And I am a total beer snob in the United States. Really? I always have IPAs, you know, okay. India Pale Ale, because I think it has more flavor than regular beer. And I used to drink regular old lagers in the U.S. And then I just got to be, I guess, snobby. I'm a little bit of a snob. I'll, okay. I'll admit it. Own it. But then in Prague, everything's Pilsner. And I loved it because they just have it. It's so fresh. It's so well made. And I turned into a Pilsner snob <laughs> being in the Czech Republic. And I, my trip really turned out to be focused around beer. Of course, I went to Prague Castle. Um, I ate a lot of in these traditional sort of former communist cafeterias, which were cool. But what I remember about the trip is going to be I've sort of been turned on again to another kind of beer, which will impact my day-to-day life. And it, it is really what you want. You want to come back from a trip a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to go relax. But what you want is you want a trip that changes your life in some way. It doesn't have to be a, a huge change. It doesn't have to be like uh, a new career or anything like that. But some way that, in, at least in a little way, it changes your life. Like I appreciate a, a, a new kind of, of beer or I've made some new friends, mm-hmm. say, in a village somewhere. When you write an article about the experience, talk about the feedback that you get from the readers because I think that so many people are striving for the experience but they struggle to say like, okay, I've got my guidebook and i got to check these things off. How do you suggest they balance that? One of my, I think, it might be my top piece of advice of all time is, of course, you want to plan your trip and you want to look in the guidebooks and look online and read reviews and all that kind of stuff. The sacrifice you make for being spontaneous in travel is very small. Right. You're going to lose a, an hour at most maybe. Uh, oh, you see a, a store or, or you, you go, you're you on your way to a fancy restaurant, but you see a really – like you're in Italy and you see a little neighborhood bistro that's really just totally packed with people and someone's – playing music and a couple of people are dancing. Well, you know, walk in anyway, see if there's a table for you, screw your reservation in a in a fancy restaurant and and, see, and you know what the worst thing that can happen again. Oh, you have a bad meal. Well, first of all, I doubt you're going to have a bad meal. Uh, second of all, what you missed a uh, Michelin-starred restaurant in Italy. Oh, go to a Michelin-starred restaurant back home and you know make up for it or something like that. So I really advise people to not get caught up in a list of things they have to do and just check them off. Checking off lists is the worst possible way to travel. I hate the term bucket list Mm. because it makes you think that there are certain things people have to see in order to be a civilized, cultured traveler. Mm. One of the places people love to go traveling these days is Thailand. I've never been to Thailand. I'm a travel writer and I've never been to Thailand. Really? I I feel bad. Do I feel bad about that? Sort of in a superficial way I do. But you know what? I do Latin America and Europe. Those are the places I like to go. And, you know, I've been to Korea. I've been to China. But I've never been to Thailand. Would I like to go? If you handed me a ticket, would I go tomorrow? I would. But I'm not like wrapped up in the fact that I haven't been to Thailand. And you don't feel bad about yourself? Well, people just look at me. They're like, what do you mean you've never been to Thailand? And I say, well, look, I've been to – I have a lot of friends in Brazil. I have a lot of friends in Mexico. I have a lot of friends in France. I like to visit places multiple times. There's another piece of advice. Don't think you have to be everywhere once. And a lot of times it's better to be in one place five times 
than to go to five different countries once. You get to know a place. Maybe you pick up a few words of the language. You meet people. The people in a in the in the corner store remember you from the last time you stayed in that same bed and breakfast or whatever. I think that that's a great advice because I think that there are people who say like, oh, I have to go to this place or that place. And I think about even uh, the last time that I was in Italy, I had never been to this one region called Emilia Romagna, mm. which is supposed to be like the best food of Italy. Yeah. And sure. so we like had gone to Venice and actually someone said to me, Ugh, Venice, I hate Venice. Like, everybody gets a hate on for something, and they'll tell right. you, oh, let me tell you why I hate Venice. Too crowded. We had an amazing time. We went to these weird neighborhoods part yeah. that are, like, uh, like the part of Venice that nobody goes to. It was amazing. Like you said, we just ambled in. We ne- I don't even think we went to a site. I swear to God, I think we just walked all over and tried to figure out. We said, how long will it take to get lost every day in Venice, which was kind of a fun thing. Sure, getting lost is great. Okay, so we rent a car. By the way, renting a car in Venice is a trip, and getting out of Venice was a trip. And we drove across the middle of Emilia-Romagna, and we ate our way for, like, the next five days. And I think we had a reservation in a, a small hotel, but that was it. And then we met people, and we met the guy who was, like, a weird U.S., like, he was Italian-born, U.S. lawyer, started a vineyard, took us out for dinner, wanted us to meet his friend who owns the restaurant, met them, did that. Like, those are the things that are so memorable to me. One good way to choose where you want to go is how friendly the people have a reputation of being there. So it's Italy, one of it's probably its greatest strength, mm-hmm. is that this sort of adventure in Italy is easy to have as long as you can get out of, well, you did the right thing going to other neighborhoods in Venice. And by the way, that's not even that hard. Just Google, like, non-touristy Venice, mm-hmm. and you're going to find a lot of pieces of it. You don't have to go, to, again, you don't have to go to a place with no tourists, just places that are a little less crowded. But then Italians are so wide open to meeting new people, and they're a lot of fun, especially in small towns that are a little lazier. Now, if you're thinking about these experiences, do you have an opinion, hotel versus Airbnb? Do you think both have merits? What, what's your, how do you come down on this? Well, um, I do think they both have merits. I think it depends on what you want. If you want a sort of a more catered experience and you want to have things be a little easier than a hotel is probably the way to go. There's always a little bit of complication with a, a vacation rentals like Airbnb. There's always a chance that you're not going to meet up with a person at the right time. And there's always a chance it's not going to be quite what you thought it was going to be. I, I do use Airbnb. I, it's not my favorite company. Uh, I think that Why is that? Well, it, it's a little bit like Uber in, in the sense that they they do skirt the law in a lot of places. And, and now, you know, we live in New York, and in New York there's a lot of Airbnb rentals that are illegal. They, keep, they even have it out on the subway. Have you seen this? The, these announcements, please report anyone illegally renting out their apartment in your building. Oh, yeah. And that's because Airbnb, they basically allow you to do it until you're caught. Right. Kind of. And I don't like that. It impacts. I was in a neighborhood in Lisbon. I stayed in a wonderful Airbnb. It's great. For, basically, it's great for travelers. It's not always great for the people living in the city. That's right. that's the problem. But if you're a traveler and you know you have no conscience like me, you do the best thing. Stop for you. it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But but Airbnb is a really it's a great idea for a company, and uh, it's been very successful. And the reason is it is cool to stay in a residential neighborhood. So. All other things being equal, I'd rather stay in an apartment or a house in a residential area close to the touristy area where the attractions are than to stay in a hotel. But there's no doubt that being in a hotel, you're, you're much more um, taken care of. Right. And, and you know, you can have long, horrible days that you're trekking and doing stuff and you come back and you're like, oh, there's been maid service. There's like little things like that. I found that in certain places as a English-speaking person – 
having a hotel can be very helpful. So have you traveled to Japan at all? No, well, I have a story about that, but the bottom line is no. I had a trip canceled right after the tsunami. Oh, gosh. I mean, that was a place that I found I was so happy that I went and I had no desire to go back. <laughs> so is that, is that you know, you ever have that experience? Sure. Like, God, this was educational. It was interesting. It was hard, though. I mean, it yeah. was, they do not speak English very widely. Uh, Obviously, there was like that moment in the subway where I stared at the sign trying to figure out which subway to get on. And of course, this is not our alphabet. No. Um, the concierge at my hotel had very nicely written down on a piece of paper what I should be looking for. And I literally was looking at my piece of paper, looking up at the board, looking at my paper. <laughs> and I probably was standing there for 15 minutes. Nobody tr- would help me. Right. Then total gringo walks by. He says, hey, do you need some help? I said, oh, my God, I love you. Where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from California, but I've been here for 20 years. Yeah. He said, looks at the piece of paper. He starts laughing. He goes, you're on the wrong track. I said, would they have let me stay there for an hour? He goes, no, they would have let you stay there forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a fairly similar experience in China, which has a similar problem with the way the language is written and a lack of people uh, speaking English. By the way, you should be thankful you speak English. Uh, if you were from, uh, you know, let's say you were from um, Germ- Germany and you ran around trying to speak German all over the world, mm. you would find no one to help you, at least with English. We're very lucky. We should we should realize that. The language of travel around the world and younger people, maybe Japan's an exception, but most places, if you look for someone who's under 25, they probably speak some English. They've so, probably been watching YouTube. And I felt like the Chinese people were totally excited and interested and sort of like, hey, who are you? And this was a while ago, so it's almost 10 years ago that I was in China. I actually think I scared the crap out of these Japanese people. Like Mm -hmm. we're in, you know, we're in different places and I'm big, I'm tall. And that's very daunting. I felt like a lot of women looked at me and were a little frightened and turned away. I was a little too tall. And then my friend of mine who's blonde says, imagine, she's six feet and blonde. She goes, oh, my God, they were touching my hair like crazy. It is true. I I shouldn't speak badly of the Chinese. They are great hosts. I had a – well, I tried – I took a boat up the Yangtze Mm. River. And like is my want, I decided to get off at a random town where there was not only no one who spoke English, there were no signs even with Roman – like even like a store sign. You couldn't even tell what kind of a store it was. No. The people were very curious about me and were very nice to me. And one woman, the hotel clerk in, in one place, um, I was asking her through Google Translate, by the way, a great tool for travelers these days. It makes it easier than it used to be. Right. Uh, where should I have breakfast? She called her son in Beijing who spoke English, put me on the phone with him. We decided on a place because he was from the town, so he knew a place for lamb noodles. Handed the phone back to her. He talked to her. She gets gets up from behind the reception desk in the hotel, takes me outside, puts me in her car, drives me to the lamb noodle place, orders for me, waits while I eat, and then drives me back to the hotel. Okay, so there it is. That's experience, quintessential. What's your view on self-guided or getting tour guides when you go to a place that... I mean, obviously, you don't necessarily need a tour guide in Florence or in Paris because it's pretty easy to get around. But what about places where you think it might be either more efficient or you're going to get something much different? There's certain places that you sort of have to have a guide. So there's a lot of nature-oriented or adventure travel kind of places or that you you sort of stuck without a guide. I was recently in the Amazon in, in Brazil, and you can't really do the Amazon on your own. First of all, it's dangerous. Second of all, you couldn't get to the place. I had a, an amazing four-mile, four-kilometer, two-mile, whatever that is, 
kilometers and miles. It's so confusing. <laughs> we never went metric. It was about a three-hour walk through a rainforest, like a real primary forest, with a guide who was part indigenous showing us what all the plants were and sort of chopping at the bark with his machete so we could see the little milky substance come out and he'd say how he'd feed it to his kids and stuff like that. That's the sort of thing you need to evaluate. Is this something I really need a guide for? Is it something that I can print something out? A lot of walking tours are available that you can kind of just print out. And I really recommend actually printing them out. And you can get a lot of information that way. And that's kind of fun. You're wandering. You're following a map. Uh, and then there's other places you can just kind of you know walk around on, on your own. Food tours is, is a good thing to do. I, I certainly – I'm not really big on full package tours where you're being taken everywhere by a guide. Some people like that. It's fine. But you do just have much less incentive to talk to anybody. Uh, my sister-in-law had stumbled a few years back on context tours. Have you heard about these oh, guys? yeah. I think I have, They're yeah. really interesting. And you can go to, you know, lots of different cities and you can get – they have these very specific tours that say like, oh, I have an architecture student – in Paris who will sort of do the architectural tour of Paris mm-hmm. or I'll do this one. And so they're easy to book. It's all online and it's pretty affordable. I mean, as opposed to getting, I mean, I had an amazing tour guide in Turkey, in Istanbul. It was honestly phenomenal. I never would have gotten to half of the places that she took us, but it was expensive. I mean, I think you have to weigh those those differences. You can do a lot of, I wouldn't want to go to a city and have done no research at all and then not have a guide. Right. Um, Even if that research is reading historical fiction about the city, you want to have some sort of context because if you just jump out in a city and just say, well, I'm just going to walk around, you're going to lose out on a lot. An architect, I would take an architectural city a tour of, uh, of New York City. Me too. I was, I Walking totally want to do that. Yep. I once had a friend who told me the one thing you got to remember to do in New York City is always look up because you never are far enough away from the buildings to see it because it's so narrow. All the streets are so narrow. And once in a while, I remember that. And I'll look up. I'll always see something amazing. I'll be like, oh, I should really take an architectural tour of the city. Yeah. And you know, I did a great architectural tour of Chicago. And it was really fascinating. And they did it from the water. I took a free tour of Chicago. I think it's called like Chicago Greeters or something like that. And that was a phenomenal tour. Uh, I'm totally into taking tours, like a three-hour tour. Yeah. That was oh, a Gilgut's Island. I was just going to say, Mark, <laughs> cue that music. A three-hour tour. Um, right. And, but unlike the Gilligan's Island tour, usually they only last for three hours. And then you can go out and do stuff on your own or go back to some of the places. Or maybe at the end, when you do take a tour, always ask the guide. For a restaurant that's a, that's, a, that's you know, the sort of best. Thing. I do recommend that people be careful about how they ask for restaurant recommendations because in many cases, the person will just send you to the kind of place that they always send all the other travelers. I, yeah. I like to change the question up a little bit and say, like, where's the last place you took your family? Or sometimes I try to, depending on the culture, I'll sort of say, look, I want you to recommend me a restaurant with local food and a local experience. But if I see another tourist in that place. I'm going to come back and I'm going to have a word with you. Nice. And I kind of joke around like that so they know I'm kind of serious. It's right. Like, it's like when you they say, how spicy do you want your food? And if you really love spicy food, you kind of have to say, look, I'm not the average traveler. Yeah. You can serve it to me like you serve it to the other people who live here. And if you don't sort of go out of your way to be like, look, buddy, then you're just going to get the normal experience. So we know that so many Americans don't even take the allotted vacation time that they get. I mean, first of all, a bunch of them don't get vacation time. So, you know, you you don't. We're the only country, you know. I know, only developed developed, yeah. that does not have mandatory vacation time. And the average working 
employee gets about two weeks off. But even that, even if you get the two weeks, Americans don't take their time. Why is that? What can we do to help the change? I mean, some of them will just say, I don't have enough money to travel. So what's your answer to that? Right, but you could take the time off in your own city. That's what I think. Or or drive to the nearest. Everyone, well, not everybody, but most people live within driving distance of some interesting place, whether that be, you know, a, a cool historical town in Texas or or Minneapolis or, you know, Seattle or the, a national park or something like that. Of course, you know, you have to have a little bit of money to do it. But not taking your vacation is just uh, it's total insanity. And it's, depressing. It's depressing. It's one of the things where if you really think you're that indispensable at work that you don't want to take any vacation, something's wrong in your company mm. or something's wrong with you. Tr- take a, the time during the year to show someone else how to take over for you for two weeks. And then and then just go. You don't have to travel, but you just take the time off and you know read a book at least. Right, relax. Like just know, relax. Most countries and these countries are countries that that work out okay. They they have thirty days of vacation or twenty days of vacation, and people really take them. And guess what? The whole place doesn't fall apart. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how to prepare to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. In other words. How do we disconnect? Because to have this experience, to say a guide for the globally curious, if you want to be globally curious, you have to be present. And checking your phone every 16 minutes is not going to help you. First of all, I have a whole appendix in my book. It's called travel mode. I compare it with airplane mode. Like in airplane, you turn on airplane mode so you don't interfere with, you know, whatever. Whatever baloney that is, is. I believe in something called travel mode, which doesn't exist, but you can sort of enforce it upon yourself. There's certain things you shouldn't do when you're traveling. You should not be posting to Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever while you're in a place visiting a museum or visiting sites or whatever. You should wait until you get back to your hotel. If you're going to if you have to post, wait until you get back to your hotel. So in my imaginary world where travel mode exists, it actually has a GPS function that doesn't let you post to social media unless you're in your hotel. Mm. Uh, that's the sort of thing I would recommend because it's just, it's distracting. It's a pain. Also, I don't know why people feel the need to show where they are in real time. Whatever happened to like getting ba- coming back home and telling a story about where you were? Oh, or I think you that you are th- showing your age, sir. Throwback. Th- well, <laughs> I'm not saying that you should have a slideshow and invite your neighbors over. That's really, that really is horrifying. Like it's horrible. 80s or something like that. But you, your friends do not need to know where you are at that exact moment. How about a little throwback Thursday a couple weeks later? That's a modern thing. Yeah. Here's where I was. I, I have friends who take great pictures when they travel. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. And... You don't ever see where he is while he's there, but for a few months afterwards, you can sure bet that every Thursday or a couple times a week, you're going to see a beautiful picture, which he chose and actually went on the computer and cropped it and made it into something really beautiful and then showed it. And of course, sometimes people comment like, I can't believe you're in uh, Ethiopia. I'm here too. Let's get together. He's like, I'm not in Ethiopia. I was there like last August. But that's just as good, if not better. And it does take you out of the moment just to be thinking about what other people are thinking of you. I don't think there's any reason at all to be looking at text messages or emails or anything. Tell the few people who might need to get in touch with you, call me. Yeah. I'll pick up a phone if I'm actually receiving a phone call. If not, I'm going to check it once a day. Right. It's probably not reasonable to ask people to leave their phones in the hotel. That used to be reasonable about 10 years ago. Or Now people, you need Google Maps in case you get lost, right. that sort of thing. That's okay. Um, but 
maybe don't get a data plan for being abroad. So you have to go to a restaurant and hook up to the Wi-Fi or something like right. that. Right. Even that, it's still hard to get a data plan in some places and it's expensive. But within about five or ten years, it's not going to be the case. You're going to have data everywhere you go. Your phone is going to work everywhere you go. So don't turn it on. Go to go use Wi-Fi only. You know, it's it's you'll always find a Wi-Fi place if you really need to in an emergency. This is Jill on Money. We'll get back to our interview in just a second. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you probably recognize that it's me, Jill, Jill Schlesinger. I'm also a certified financial planner, a CBS News business analyst, and yes, the host of this podcast called Jill on Money. Okay, today I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Despite the taboo, money is not only personal it is social. Marcus serves up financial tips, insights, and inspiration to help you get better about your finances. And you can join in on the conversation by following at Marcus by Goldman Sachs on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or at Marcus on Twitter. Every follow is a financial step in the right direction. You can money. And now back to our interview with travel writer Seth Kugel. If someone's listening right now and they say, I haven't booked my summer vacation, mm-hmm. uh, what should they do to get started? Is it just as simple as like, where is it that you want to go? Or should it be about price? Or I mean, obviously well, there's a budget involved. If they haven't booked their summer vacation yet they're, and price is a factor, they're not going to want to think about where their dream destination is. They're going to look around for good deals. And there are tools on a lot of... Um, Online travel agencies, as we call them, Kayak and Wikipedia yeah. and that kind of thing. They can see, like, where are the deals? And you can Google how to how to find those. Uh, and it'll say, well, for these particular dates or for this month, these dates, you can get to Romania or, or, or Turkey or, you know, whatever for cheaper than usual. Right. Phoenix is a very uh, good place to Phoenix find a good, good deal. Good, fantastic exactly. deal in, in August. Another thing you can do is look at the average prices for specific dates on a hotel booking site. And so you can sort of see, oh boy, if this place is, if you look for New York over Christmas week or something like that, you're going to see really high prices. But maybe if you looked in, I don't know, in Chicago in August, you'll see that there's a week that there's nothing going on and and maybe it's a cheap time to go there and a great time to go to to Chicago. What's your opinion about using these online searches? Because uh, one travel person told me that, Nowadays, you can look online, but only half of the inventory is available online, so you're actually better off calling hotels. Is that right? I don't think that half of the inventory is online, but there is a strange rule that says that no matter what site you go to, the hotel, at least the big chains, they sort of say we're, the only way you can get listed on Booking and Expedia and Hotels.com is by having the same price available on your own site as they do on Hotels.com. And they have to pay a commission to Hotels.com. So if you call them and say, are there any better places, some places, especially small hotels, will be like, yeah, we can give you a 10% discount because you're both making money. You're cutting right. out the middleman. But they're not allowed to put that online. Sometimes right. they put it online because nobody's super monitoring that. But, yes, yeah, so calling a place is a really good idea uh, and asking what their best rate is for this time. The opposite, though, can also happen. I've been on road trips where I go and walk into a motel, like an average comfort inn or whatever, just I need a place to sleep, and I ask what the price is, and they say, well, it's $97 a night. And I'm like, hold on a second. And then I go on to one of the apps, and it's like $53. And oh I'm my like, God. why don't you give me this rate? 
because I'm going to pay $53 a night to Hotels.com, and then Hotels.com is going to keep $10. You're only going to get $43, but they don't. They just can't do it. All right, so, so you want to do both. So good practice to do both. All Calling right. is just a great idea in general because people don't call anymore, especially small local hotels. So um, my calling foray went like this, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, go to Paris, and we we're trying to book something, and online there was a price, and I called the hotel, and I left a message and said, could the manager call me back? And the manager called me back, and I said, you know, I have some corporate deals at another hotel, but I really want to come to you. And let me tell you, the deals are freaking amazing that the corporate rate gets you, right? Mm -hmm. And the guy sort of paused, and he goes, and he waited, and he was very French. He goes, so I guess you are looking for me to drop my price. (laughs) I said, yes, exactly, unless you don't want me to come to your hotel. But the price differential that he dropped by was, it wasn't as awesome as I thought. It was like 25% less than what was listed. So I did it. But I have to say, I was so happy there because when I arrived, it wasn't like they were like, oh, here comes the pain in the butt from New York. They were so happy. It was delightful. And I do love a small hotel's service. And they just like want to do everything for you. You can also get a sense when you call them, you get a better sense of it than, than looking at a website, right? Because if they're very friendly and they're nice when they answer the phone and they pay attention to you. That's Chances are that's the way they're going to treat you. Yeah, it was great. Okay, shall we talk about the elephant in the room, which is flying and how much oh. I hate it? I'm fine, Wait, but... Podcast hosts don't always fly first class. Is that I fly first me? in business because I'm almost six feet tall, but oh, right. it is... But it's still ridiculous. I mean, the way that the industry has now wedged us in, in general. I Was it, was it on the Times where I read an article about why business class, why you cannot sleep in business class seats because the way they have like engineered them is actually not the way most people sleep, which is they give you room at the head, but not at the waist. Uh, you know, I did write a column called The Frugal Traveler for five years, so I, I'm not used to business class. So I'm sort Let of me just say this. Cry me a river kind okay, of. Okay, I get it, but but just flying in general. Oh, it's, it's horrible. I mean, one, there's a few things I would say about that. First of all, don't fly multiple times in one trip. But don't say I'm going to go for three weeks to Europe. I'm gonna, first I'm going to go to Paris, and I'm going to go to Greece, and I'm going to go to, you know, Berlin. Go to one place. Take the train after that if you mm-hmm. if you need to get out. First of all, flying multiple times in one trip is terrible environmentally. Uh, flying is a really is a, a climate change sort of bad causer. Bad. And so, no one's stopping traveling. But if you could just take one flight each way, and then either. Take a bus or rent a car or, or don't go very far. Uh, people try to fit in. I had a friend who tried to take a trip, doesn't travel much, tried to take a trip for two weeks to Spain and Morocco and tried to go to about six different cities in two weeks, which is just insane. Two days per city. I mean, I guess in theory, when you think about it, it sounds okay. But then imagine getting from one place to another it takes half a day to begin with. You're rushing around. Personally, the first 24 hours I'm in a strange city, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't feel good anyway. I feel like disoriented. Yeah. So go to a place for a longer period of time, and that'll save you, and then you'll just have to suck it up and take the one the one trip. Frugal traveler, I'll go, go back to your roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about all these ideas about when to book, do you call this time, the flights, and where you get good deals, and calling 329 days in advance uh-huh. to get you use your mileage. Or There's all these seems uh-huh. like workarounds. What what's the the best practice? I think the best practice is to book as far in advance as you can without going crazy about it. Obviously, if you're 
trying to book in summer vacation or spring break or something like that, you want to do it earlier. When they say you should book 53 days in advance for international flights, that is an average. That means that on average, if you did that 100 times, you would save an average of $3 each time. There's no not even close to an exact science. There is a cool site called hopper.com that has if you really want to research it, that would be a place to research it like when's the best month to travel here. It is also certainly true that there are high seasons and low seasons in different places, but how many days in advance to book or should you book on a Tuesday or something right. like that? Right. That was right there was like 12:01 Tuesday morning. That was a big thing for a minute. One of the big problems, I think, with travel today is people get obsessed and spend so much time trying to, you know, we used to just go to a travel agent and let them do it. I loved that. Uh, And travel agents still exist, by the way, and they still work pretty well. So if you're the kind of person that loves to obsess over setting your alarm so you can get up and and check the, the flights at a certain time of the middle of the night to get the best. I mean, sure, if that's the kind of thing you like to do, if that thing causes you dread then just take it a little easier or get someone else to plan your trip for you. What about these uh, tertiary airports um, (laughs) worth checking out? Because sometimes you can get screwed by doing that. Well, you're talking about like when you have a really cheap flight, but you end up an hour outside of Paris. First of all, you have to check what the transportation is from one place to the other. You know, one of the ones in Paris, I can't remember the name of it. It's like an hour outside of Paris or an hour and a half. But there is a bus. You get right on the bus, but it does cost you a certain amount of money. Factor that, factor the timing. If you're going to Paris for a month, maybe that's worth it. If you're going to Paris for four days for the long weekend, it's definitely not worth it. And you know what's weird about that? Like just in general, like, hey, I wanted to go have the experience of doing the channel once. Okay, yeah. Which was great. Sure. One problem, it's expensive. Yeah, I was I was shocked. It was cheaper on the next trip. It was cheaper because I happened mm-hmm. to be in London, and it was cheaper to fly to Paris than take the channel. And there you go. But uh, the, then you have the, the cheap seats, and you have the long trip to I the know. airport. And trains now have turned into a luxury. Look, I just uh, recently went to Philadelphia. Uh, I could have taken the Amtrak from New York, or I could have taken the Bolt bus. And you know what? Amtrak was like over a hundred dollars round trip. And the bus was like $20. Wait a minute. Which one is environmentally better? Taking public transportation is better either way. So I'm not really sure whether a a train is probably better. Right. But is it $50 better each way? Oh, I got you. I'm with Uh, you. But driving would be the worst. Driving is is the worst thing you you can – driving – I shouldn't say that. Flying and driving are sort of equally bad. If you can take trains and buses – how That's about great. people who are nervous Nelly travelers mm. and they'll go onto a website of the State Department and say like, oh, there's a warning about this place. How seriously should we take those warnings? Well, I wouldn't go to Syria. Bad place to go. Um, Any place. So in other words, where there is a war, you don't want to travel there. You don't want to travel there. Although that said, there are countries where there is a war in part of the country and you can go to another part of the country. Uh, let's just go back to, to Colombia. There are areas of Colombia that are, even though Colombia is really a far, far safer place than it was, it's got a great travel industry now, there's great places to visit, there are parts of the country you can't go to. And you might see a warning saying there's rebel activity in this region of Colombia. Well, you can still go to Bogota or you can still go to Medellin or or go to the coffee plantations, which have great tourism these days. Somebody should do like a Narcos tour of Colombia. Oh, wouldn't that be? If you think that doesn't exist, there, oh uh, yeah. You go to Medellin, uh, you can take cartel tours. And oh where my was god, Escobar I was making that up. No, that oh really my does god, exist. I'm a little embarrassed um, now. <laughs> but uh, just a couple more things. 
so you do want to check the travel warnings. If it the travel warning says the whole country is cover is is being bombed on a day to day basis, of course you don't want to go. Just, but just read them very carefully. And a lot of times, if you delve deep, it'll have a a travel warning, uh, but then it'll say that that's only in three provinces or something mm-hmm. like that. Turkey is a really good example of this. So Turkey has a border with Syria. So of course you're not going to go to the Syrian border. But there are parts of Turkey, most of Turkey, that are still relatively safe to go. Um, The other thing I do like to always tell people is to be careful of what you're scared of. A lot of times people are scared of the wrong things. The way that most tourists and travelers die, this is an actual statistical fact from the American State Department, the way that the most U.S. citizens die in other countries is through traffic accidents. So. Mm. Car crashes, motorcycle crashes, that sort of a thing. So if you're thinking you don't want to go to Paris because you're worried about a terrorist attack and instead you rent a moped or you rent a, rent a scooter in the Caribbean, you're making a bad decision. Yeah. Because you're much more like, you know, the second biggest cause of death for Americans. Oh, wait, wait. So let me see if I can get this. Food poisoning. I don't know. I'm making that's that up. Bad, uh, that's not a bad guess. No, drowning. Drowning. So if you not a shark attack, but just plain old drowning. Well, I'm, I wonder if a shark attack counts as. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's the sort of thing where you'd go to a beach in an isolated area, and there might be a sign there that says danger, but you still like, ah, screw it, I'm going to go in, and there's mm. a riptide, or there's a, and you get sort of swept out to sea, and it's a very, very common cause of death. So again, if you're worried about terrorism, so you decide to get away from it all at an isolated beach, but you still go swimming without ask without a lifeguard. You're being irrational. Right. And use your head. I mean, obviously, if they say don't do this, just don't do it. But even if you just see a beach, ask whether if there's no one else in the water, you want to ask before you go in. Interesting. So you travel extensively to Latin America, Mm -hmm. uh, Central America, obviously, as well, and uh, and also Europe. Are there places that you really are saying, like, I have got to do this for the Times or for anywhere else because there's like a passion that you have that you haven't done it yet? Well, one of the problems with writing about travel, about places you haven't been, is that you don't know that much about them. Yeah, but still. Uh, I mean, uh, I've, I'm very poorly traveled in Southeast Asia, and it is a place I would love to go. Um, By the way, my aunt who lives in Australia, when she first went to Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. she had the greatest remark ever. It's a long way to go for a palm tree. <laughs> well, it is something you have to watch out for. So, so if you, if I think of Australia, I went to Fiji once, and Fiji to us seems like this far away exotic place in the South Pacific. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you get there, and it's all a bunch of drunk people from Australia. On, it's like they're Caribbean. It's not that there aren't really nice places to visit in Fiji, but don't think you're going to be in this isolated land full of wonders. It's like going to the Dominican Republic is for us. Right. It's a quick hop from New York. It's four hours, and it's a place where, yeah, you can go to wonderful places there, and it's a great culture. But a lot of people go just to get away from it, get, get away for the weekend, and that's what you're going to find in places like that. So be sure you realize that even no matter how far away you go, there's probably someone from nearby visiting, like just for the weekend. Where is it that you you've I'm forgetting about? You don't have to be an expert. Well, I want to see it through your eyes. Probably the place that I most regret not having been to at all. Don't be shocked. Is India? That's the same with me. Yeah. Let's go. Sure. Next year. I, I, I'm, I, I'm looking next year. The thing to, that I always, I've realized this, I, I don't know 
about India specifically, but anytime I go to a big country, I'm always amazed at how many great places there are that nobody... Look at the United States. Oh, yes. So when a tourist comes from abroad and goes to the United States, they want to go to New York, they want to go to New Orleans, maybe they want to go to Yellowstone. Think of all the other great places in the U.S. that the average foreign traveler has never heard of. Think of like the South, Charleston, South Carolina, or like people from abroad haven't heard of those places, or or... Texas, like doing a road trip in Texas or something like that. Well, India is that kind of place. It's it's humongous. There's a ton, a ton, a ton of different cultures all over the place. It's not whatever the images of India in my mind. I know that that's not what it really is. Now, Mark, who is a world traveler himself and a great executive producer, thinks that there is absolutely no way he'll ever go to India. Is that true, Mark? That is true, he says. I am enamored and slightly scared. People do find themselves overwhelmed by Mm -hmm. India. It is not a place to go if you like to be isolated. I'm pretty sure if I went to India, I'd I'd stop by Mumbai or something for a couple days, and then I would find some rural area to go to uh, that's kind of like... So one of the things I like to do is when I go into TripAdvisor and say things to do in a place, I like to go to like number 422. And because I know that that's going to be a sort of an interesting spot like or, or or just to Google like twenty places in India you've never heard of, and find one of those and make that my first trip to India as opposed to um, going to the the, the hotspots which are going to be these huge cities with lots of great stuff I'm sure, but also tons of tourists, massive crowds, lots of uh, discomfort at being a rich person in a poor because you're rich if you go to India no matter yeah. how rich you are here. I very carefully curate my first India experience so it's not stereotypical. And try so to, let's stay in touch. I think we can yeah, uh, make something happen it. here. I'll do the first world part. You do the third world part. <laughs> and then you'll help me. And you'll be in business class and I'll be in coach. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. To India? Come on. Do you take drugs when you fly overnight or not? I do. What do you take? Uh, um, what's the it's a, Ambien? Uh, yeah, it's Ambien. It's, it has a different name because it's the generic, so yeah. I never remember what it is. Mm. I take Ambien. Um, I didn't do it for decades, and then I was like, "Well, why am I not sleeping on a plane? I'm just going to take this drug." I don't yeah, care. I know, and it, it works pretty well. Yeah, you know, just got to chill, and like, so you don't want to wake up the next morning and be like, "Oh my god, I cannot function for three days." It does bother me sometimes to miss like breakfast or something. Not, not that the, the food is terrible. That is so funny. Like, oh God, I can't believe I missed a free breakfast because I slept through it on Ambien. Mm, I never worry about that. I just <laughs> never worry about it. I know. Concern. And I always bring snacks, even wherever you're sitting on the plane. Just bring snacks with Well, you. one thing I definitely do now that has really changed how enjoyable uh, planes are is I, I was talking about missing breakfast, but I purposefully miss dinner. So when when you fly overnight, if it's an overnight flight, you do not want to eat dinner on that plane. Mm-hmm. I will have like a salad in the airport, even if I don't bring anything myself. I will go out of my way and pay extra money to have a salad in an air in the airport before I get on the plane at a reasonable hour, rather than being served 11 p.m. heavy dinner. Horrible, Seth. We started the program, and I asked you your best financial or career decision. Mm-hmm. What's your worst? <laughs> oh, boy. That is a good question. Thank I you. think that uh, sometimes I regret not having a, uh, a full-time job. It is hard. It is both great and terrible to be self-employed. Right. And I'm a freelance writer, and there are times when I think this is the greatest thing I could have ever done. Not just the work I get to do, but if I have a friend who's in town for an afternoon on a Wednesday, and I'm, to, I'm like, yeah, 
I'll go meet you for lunch and I'll walk around with you all day and then I'll do a little extra work on Saturday. So that's the great part. But the bad part is it, it is unstable. And of course, more and more people are having this experience these days. And I love what I do, but I don't like looking ahead for five years and be like, what am I going to be doing in five? I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in three months. You might not even know what you're doing in 50 minutes. Yeah, I think I'm going to get a cup of coffee. All right, sounds good. You're listening to Jill on Money. And now it's time for our new feature. It's called the Marcus Minute, presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Seth Kugel, you're in the hot seat today. Oh, boy. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Fraught. What's always worth spending on? Food. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Uh, a really bad sofa. What sound comes to mind when you get a paycheck? Um, oh my God. Uh, the sound of me closing the door to go out to spend it. Nice. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? My mom, because she taught me not to spend too much. I love that. It's your last day on earth and you've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Um, I'm going to find a really good donut shop and just stay there all day and eat donuts. Seth Kugel. <laughs> the book is called Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. Read his stuff in the New York Times and elsewhere. Sure. You have been a delight. Thank you so much oh, for joining really us. It's been really fun to be here. Thanks. Thanks to our guest, Seth Kugel. You can find him at SethKugel.com or just Google him. He's the New York Times frugal traveler columnist. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday and sometimes a Friday bonus one as well. If you would like to get those podcasts quickly and efficiently, all you have to do is subscribe to Jill on Money. You can do that on Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, anywhere else you find your favorite podcast. Oh, and leave us a, a nice review, right? We haven't asked for that in a while, Mark. So let's do that. Give us a nice review, please. That would be great. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talaricio is our executive producer and also new father. So please send all exciting greetings to him and any tips on sleep. We're distributed by Cadence 13. Our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week. 